This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. Sleep hot. Mattress Firm's sleep experts can match you with a cooling mattress from the Temper Breeze Collection from Tempur-Pedic, so you can experience measurably cooler sleep all night. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day Sale. Sleep at night. Just a heads up, y'all. This episode contains strong language and discussion of sexual violence. What's good, y'all? I'm Gene Zemby, and this is Code Switch from NPR. Okay, so this feels weird to say out loud, but I'm going to share this with y'all. One of my very first memories is about Bill Cosby, of all people. All right, story time. So, boom. It's 1984, maybe 1985. I'm not sure. But my twin sister and I started going to a daycare center in Philadelphia, right on South Street. In fact, the daycare center is still there. I just checked. I remember that we hadn't been going there very long when the women who ran our little group at the daycare center sat all of us kids in a big circle on the carpet, and they asked us about what happened on the Cosby show the night before. And all the other kids there, all little black kids like us from our neighborhood in South Philly, started answering their questions. I also remember distinctly not knowing what it was they were talking about. Like, I clearly had not gotten the memo that we were supposed to be watching this show. It went like this every Friday from then on. Little kids with barrettes in their hair and Velcro sneakers sitting on a brightly colored rug and being quizzed about what happened the night before with Rudy Huxtable and the rest of her family on TV. I honestly don't remember if we watched the Cosby show in our house before we started going to the daycare center, but I do remember... We watched it religiously after that, like, for the rest of the show's run on the air. But yeah, when I was like four, Bill Cosby literally became my first homework assignment. The Huxtables, of course, were nothing like my family. They were affluent. Cliff Huxtable was a doctor. Claire Huxtable was a lawyer. Their eldest daughter was going to Princeton. Their four other kids were college-bound. Cliff Huxtable was an affectionate husband and a game, if, you know, often exasperated father. We were poor. Our household was headed by a single, unmarried black woman. And I couldn't know all this larger political context at the time. I was like four, right? But in the Reagan era, the crack era, families that looked like mine were being held up, you know, by everyone from the president of the United States to former luminaries in the civil rights movement as the cause for all of the crises afflicting American inner cities. Street violence was actually about fatherlessness. Unemployment was a byproduct of lazy mothers freeloading off of welfare. Teen pregnancy, drug use, graffiti, you name it. These weren't taken as expressions of structural failure. They were seen as evidence of the moral rot and social dysfunction in black neighborhoods like mine. And although The Cosby Show stopped being a homework assignment in, like, the literal sense by the time I was in elementary school, it never really stopped being invoked in random conversations with my eventual elementary school teachers, all black teachers, by the way, as a template for the kind of black excellence that could be ours if we just worked hard and did well in school and lived right. The Cosby Show, The Huxtables, were meant to inspire us. Be like them, everybody seemed to be saying. And implicitly, y'all shouldn't be like y'all. In those days of just four TV networks and, you know, no streaming, Bill Cosby was everywhere. He was one of the biggest celebrities in America in TV commercials for Jell-O Pudding. What's that, Bill Cosby? Little 
jello pudding pops. Frozen pudding on a stick. And Coca-Cola ads. The new taste of Coca-Cola. It's the best Coca-Cola ever. And Kodak commercials. Oh, my God. That makes me feel really old. He was on children's television with picture pages. Time to watch Bill Cosby do a picture page with you. He was the host of Fat Albert. It's Bill Cosby coming at you with music and fun, and if you're not careful, you may learn something before it's done. And of course, there was the Cosby Show. I put the key in the ignition, turned the thing, and it went... And if you don't get it together and drop these macho attitudes, you are never going to have anybody bringing you anything, anywhere, anyplace, anytime, ever. You know, Daddy, this wouldn't happen if I had my own phone in my room. If you had your own phone, you would come out of the room one day and we would wonder who you are and charge you rent. The most watched TV show in the United States, a ratings juggernaut, the show that turned him into America's dad. I'm doing air quotes. He was the biggest and most well-paid star on TV, pulling in $65 million a year. And that ubiquity was especially OD in Philly, where I grew up. Because Bill Cosby was a local dude. He was from North Philly. And he was literally built into the landscape. There were ads for The Cosby Show on bus shelter billboards that said, Philadelphia. He was the public face of Temple University, where he briefly attended college and later sat on the board of trustees. It felt like he had pretty soundly beaten out Ben Franklin as the city's unofficial mascot. A lot of people felt like they knew him. Of course, few of us really knew Bill Cosby. And many of the people, the women who had seen who he was up close, would be traumatized for the rest of their lives. Over the last decade, we've seen more than 50 women come forward accusing Bill Cosby of sexually assaulting or raping them. Cosby's alleged attacks go all the way back to the 1960s, at the beginning of his career. When he was convicted in 2017 of sexually assaulting a woman who worked at Temple University, much of the prosecution's case rested on his own recollection from a deposition in an earlier lawsuit in which he talked about sexually assaulting a woman. Cosby's conviction was overturned last year because that testimony from that lawsuit was supposed to have been sealed. Today, Bill Cosby is an octogenarian, far removed from the height of his power and his omnipresence. But he still has many, many, many rabid defenders. All this plea copping for Bill Cosby, like the refusal to take the allegations against him seriously, is more than just your typical celebrity worship that gets activated whenever fans start defending one of their faves. Obviously, Bill Cosby amassed a good deal of that kind of soft power, right? But... He also wielded real institutional power. He showily donated to black causes. He created scholarships for black college students. In the 1980s, he famously gave what was then the largest ever philanthropic gift to a historically black college, to Spelman College, the revered HBCU for black women. When the sexual assault accusations against him surfaced and then resurfaced, Many of the people in the institutions who had benefited from his money, from his largesse and philanthropy, were very slow to distance themselves from him. He had materially implicated himself in the lives, in the careers of countless black folks. I feel like I've been grappling with Bill Cosby directly and indirectly for kind of my whole life. Like on one level, just as a fellow black Philadelphian who grew up at the apex of his influence, 
but also as someone who writes and reports and thinks about race and class and blackness for a living. Again, it feels real weird to share this with y'all, but Bill Cosby has loomed really large in the formation of my own ideas and politics, such as they are. Because as much as anybody else, maybe save President Obama, Bill Cosby seemed to embody all of the contradictions and problems inherent to the politics of representation, of having so many people's ideals and hopes about progress bound up in the life or the career of one famous, powerful person. Bill Cosby became, or rather, he consciously made himself central to all kinds of discourse around Black people in the media, around respectability politics, even Black conservatism. The Huxtables, his fictional family, became a generational shorthand for Black upper-middle-class aspiration. That's probably one of the things that protected him for so long. What he represented so often seemed to matter more than who he actually was and mattered more than the people he harmed. Even now. Still. All of this is why I was so interested to watch W. Kamau Bell's new docuseries on Showtime, We Need to Talk About Cosby. For those of y'all who don't know, Kamau Bell is a comedian, he's a TV host, and the producer of the CNN show United Shades of America. When I talked to Kamau recently, he told me he wanted to make this series to try and reckon with all the different parts of Bill Cosby's life. The television and comedy pioneer, sure, but also the moral scold, the serial rapist. Kamau talked to some of Cosby's accusers, people who worked with him, comedians who looked up to him, and the people who covered his career to try to make sense of his life and alleged crimes. I felt like there were always sort of partial parts of Cosby conversations. So you would certainly see conversations about the sexual assault and abuse that I believe he committed. And then you would see some people who would want to talk about the good things he did without in any way sort of dealing with any of the bad stuff. And it just felt to me like, I get why you'd want to have the sexual assault conversation. I don't know how you can have the good conversation without sort of dealing with the whole thing. And so for me, it felt like there was a lot of us who were like, it's not that it's about what do I believe or what do I not believe. It's how do I reckon with all of it. And deep inside of the conversation about the things he accomplished, there was a lot of like hidden history and forgotten history about what he did in his career and how, you know, it sort of makes the story even more complicated. Um, I want to sort of talk about you and Bill Cosby. You say early in the docuseries that um, in a lot of ways, you're basically like a child of Cosby, right? Um, so tell us what you mean when you say that. You know, I, I really thought, I was like, I hope people understand what I mean here, because with the subject matter, it could, it could be taken the wrong way. But I meant, like, as a black kid born in the early 70s who who was born into an America that Bill Cosby was already part of the wallpaper of black America, and the way I sort of was introduced to him as an adult male black figure in my life who was helping me become smarter through Fat Albert, through Picture Pages, through The Electric Company. You just sort of feel like he's, you know, it was almost like he lived in your neighborhood. Like, you know, even the houses down the street, those people could tell you uh, to get out of the street and go home. You know what I mean? Like he was another parental figure in my life just through the television. So I think for a lot of us, we sort of, from the time we were born to the time we grew up, Bill Cosby has been in our lives telling us to do better and be smarter and to, uh, and where to go to school. You know, like, I think it was just sort of like he was a parental figure and 
with the, you can't dis, you can't disentangle that from the fact he literally became known as America's dad. So when you say I'm a child of Bill Cosby, you're saying I was a child during the period of time when this dude was America's dad. All right, y'all, when we come back, we're going to be talking more about how Bill Cosby's various personas, philanthropist, educator, race man, America's dad, helped him get away with being a very different person away from the spotlight. Behind the scenes, he's doing things that most of us don't know, but he's like, his career was always cloaked in change agent and important figure. That's after the break, y'all. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor Grammarly. Change the way you write with Grammarly Go, offering personalized generative AI communication assistance. Grammarly Go helps you ideate, compose, rewrite, and reply thoughtfully. Go to Grammarly.com slash go. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. Big news stories don't always break on your schedule. But with the NPR app, news, culture, and podcasts are ready when you want them. In your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Hello, I'm Johnny O'Hanson Jr. Join me each week on In Black America as we profile current and historically significant figures whose stories help illuminate life in Black America. You don't want to miss the conversation. KUT Radio and Black America are members of the NPR Network. Thanks for listening to In Black America. Gene, still just Gene for now. Code switch. And we're back with more from my conversation with W. Kamau Bell, the stand-up comedian, and producer and creator of the new docu-series, We Need to Talk About Cosby. So before the break, Kamau and I were both talking about what it meant to grow up with Bill Cosby as this looming, almost ubiquitous figure, a persona who was consistently held up as the image of Black aspiration. So I wanted to ask Kamau when he first started to become aware of the cracks in the Cosby veneer. So I remember seeing Bill Cosby in the early 2000s, and I remember at the time, I think before I heard about sexual assault allegations, I remember hearing about uh, Autumn Jackson. Autumn Jackson was the woman who was threatening to come forward and say that Bill Cosby was her father through uh, an extramarital affair that he had with her mother. Yes. And so that was like the first time I heard about anything that was like, oh, this is messier than I thought. As I say in the doc, I had heard that Bill Cosby cheated on his wife a lot. And that was just sort of a thing you go, OK, sure, it's showbiz. But that was the first time it got a little bit messy. But again, I think at that point, you're sort of following that as like celebrity gossip news. So it just sort of, again, I heard about that stuff, but it just sort of like I didn't I wasn't watching the evening news every night. I wasn't watching CNN. It's just sort of a thing you sort of hear about and you don't know what to make of it. And again, I think it becomes easy at that point. 
you know, Hollywood has weaponized the casting couch uh, as a way to go, well, this is what happens, or this is groupie behavior. So I don't think I really took it in, but I definitely heard that it was not just her, it was other women. But at the time, America did a really good job, it doesn't do a good job anymore, of going, don't look over here, look over here. So Bill Cosby was still showing up on late night talk shows, being America's dad. I remember going to see Bill Cosby live because I was like, he's coming to do stand-up comedy and and sort of wondering, I wonder if he's going to talk about that Adam Jackson thing. He did not. It was like all the streams weren't crossing back then. And you were allowed to only cross the streams you wanted to cross, I would say. So you could just ignore stuff because there wasn't, you didn't open your phone and have go, no, no, you need to confront this. If you, you know, since you have Googled Bill Cosby, here's everything related to Bill Cosby every time you open your phone, which is Mm -hmm. how it is now on my phone. Which is exactly what Hannibal Burr sort of said in his off-the-cuff not even routine, like off-the-cuff sort of jokes yeah. um, that he yeah. made in Philly back in 2014. That routine got a lot of attention, but he was basically saying, like, look, like, y'all can go and Google right now and type Bill Cosby rape and all kinds of stuff will come up. Trust me, you leave here, Google Bill Cosby rape. And, you know, that that bit was only captured on Granny's cell phone footage, but it prompted a lot of coverage and it prompted a few women to come forward. And within a few months, dozens of women came forward and said that they had been assaulted by Bill Cosby. So why do you think... That moment with Hannibal Burris and Philly catalyzed this groundswell of scrutiny for Cosby that wasn't there before. Yeah, Hannibal didn't think he was breaking news. I mean, I think it's so clear when you watch him do it. He's like, what? You don't believe me? Just Google it. Like, he wasn't saying, I have found the documents. He wasn't, you know, <laughs> I think he was a little bit surprised by the audience's reaction. Like, oh, what? You don't know this or you don't talk about this? Uh, and it was in Philly, too. So it, it and it was in Philly. So I think he was even more so like, what? You Philly doesn't know? Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> and so... I mean, to me, it's like that, you know, that that uh, famous line from Jurassic Park where Jeff Goldblum's like a butterfly flaps its wings <laughs> on one side of the planet and a monsoon happens somewhere on the other side of the planet. Like, mm-hmm. I think it is literally the perfect storm that could not be replicated. You know, it's also about YouTube was sort of coming into prominence in 2014. Cell phones were able to finally get footage that was starting to be worth a damn. He was in Philadelphia. He was a black male comedian. So there was a part of it that didn't, that sort of felt more authentic or more real because it was a black male comedian. And I think also part of this is also Hannibal's disinterest in making this into his career is also a part of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's like, I, I, you can you can do with it what you want, but it's not about me. One of the things you do in the documentary is pull out this very disturbing through line in Cosby's career from like the very beginning, way back in the 60s. He is basically openly referring to slipping stuff in women's drinks mm-hmm. in order to make them more amorous, more sexually how, compliant, yeah. like that the way he would frame it. This shows up in his early comedy. It shows up in his books. He talked about it in TV interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, as someone who consumed a lot of Cosby content from the time you were really young, did you ever notice this stuff before you started working on this documentary? No, because as I said, I didn't think I even realized he was a stand-up comedian until Bill Cosby himself. I did not grow up listening to all the comedy albums. Uh, for me, I, the thing I do remember when I watched it, I was like, I sort of have a memory of this, is the barbecue sauce thing from the Cosby show. Hmm. 
Like, I do remember that there was this sort of running gag, as Joseph C. Phillips puts it in the doc, of how this barbecue sauce made you amorous. Things out for themselves. They haven't worked anything out for themselves. It's my barbecue sauce. <laughs> Your barbecue sauce. My barbecue sauce. Haven't you ever noticed after people have some of my barbecue sauce, after a while when it kicks in, they get all huggy-buggy? <laughs> Stop. I'm dead serious. <laughs> Haven't you ever noticed that after one of my barbecues and they have the sauce, people want to get right home? But what I don't remember is being shocked by it, offended by it, confused by it. Uh, I don't remember my mom being shocked, offended, or confused by it. It just sort of like, and it sh- what it shows is that th- just the nature of Hollywood, the nature of show business, that Bill Cosby was regarded as such a good figure that he could get away with stuff that another comic would not get away with. So if it was a comic who didn't have such a family-friendly image, you would probably see it differently. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the context of the show, which I watched when I was growing up like everybody, um, I, it would have not tripped any alarms. But then when you, when you watch that scene with the barbecue sauce in the documentary, it is so disturbing, like so disturbing. You have in the documentary, you have people watch that scene and they're like, bruh, how do we yeah. miss this? <laughs> yeah. How do we? I, I, this is why I think it's great to be a comic making this, because we could sort of like have this dark laugh about it that you wouldn't have in other documentaries about it. Like you could really sort of have the real reaction of like, what the fuck is going on here? Uh, and I think that, you know, related to that was when I started to do this work on my own before I was working on the series, I was like, wait. Wasn't Dr. Heathcliff Huxtable an OBGYN? Yeah. And wait a minute. Wasn't his office in the basement of the house? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, every other TV show, they will tell you the office is across town, and they will just magically get the person there and back whenever they need to. They just walk out one door and in another door. But for some reason on that show, and he could have been, as Kieran Amayo says, you could have been a dentist, yeah. but you weren't. <laughs> like, you know, like He could have been any other doctor with any other specialty, and it wouldn't have looked as weird when you look back on it. And he could have had his office anywhere in the world. He could have had it in Paris and said, I have a private jet that gets me there in time for work. But he didn't. He had it in the basement. Of his yeah, house. in his basement. Uh, one of the things that um, we need to talk about Cosby gets into is all the ways that the Cosby of the 1960s was this really important, really towering black first. Like, I had no idea about a lot of this stuff from his biography. Like, within just four or five years of him starting out in stand-up comedy, he was already the first black person to be a main character on a network TV drama mm-hmm, with I Spy. Mm-hmm. He became the first black person to win a primetime Emmy mm-hmm. because of I Spy. Um, he won three in a row. He won three in a row, right. Um, I was really surprised to learn that he like you said before, was like the seminal figure mm-hmm. in the creation of this whole industry of black stuntmen. He basically like kickstarted it as a viable profession. Again, I think there is a sense of Cosby came through the door as an important figure because, you know, Dick Gregory kicks the door open. So therefore the next few people come through the door are really important. And it's not, you know, so Cosby coming right after Dick Gregory and in the middle of America, you know, we've had a lot of racial reckonings. I'm sure you've, (laughs) as you're aware. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's it's May again. Yeah. Yeah. So this was the, this was the 1960s racial reckoning when black people were on TV getting arrested and beat up every night by the cops or whatever, or by water hoses and sit-ins. And so being black is a charged identity and Bill Cosby's on TV talking about football and going to the movies. Mm. 
and he's very, and he's not he's not doing it in a way that feels, feels like he's putting himself down or putting black people down. He's just a good looking, uh, college educated uh, young man who is the kind of guy you'd want to introduce your parents to, as uh, as Michael Dennis says in the doc. Like he's sort of like he's not he doesn't seem pressed by the news of the day, but he also doesn't seem like he's like he's somehow like a sellout. He's not like somebody who's out there like just trying to make trying to get over for himself. He sort of carries himself in a way that he is like that black people could watch and feel like he's representing us well and white people could watch and be like, oh, black people aren't scary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If, if he had just done that, that was big. But then to get I Spy, he becomes important because he's because he's the first white, black person to be a co-lead on a show and he gets three Emmys in a row and then we don't know. And behind the scenes, he's doing things that most of us don't know. But he's like, his career was always cloaked in change agent and important figure. You show in the documentary that he was able to become so popular. Like, the profile of the time said he transcended race, which is the thing I used to say about black people who had crossover appeal all the time. Yeah, they never said it about David Bowie. He transcended race. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the only black people. Um, yeah. But you, you wrote that he transcended race by kind of switching gears because, as you said, Dick Gregory kicks down the door. And Bill Cosby idolized Dick Gregory. He sort of patterned a lot of his early act around Dick Gregory's act um, before pivoting to, like, almost never talking about race, right, and mm-hmm. being really clean. What was that switch and approach about for him? I think Bill Cosby was always had, I think there are some comedians, and let's take it separate from any crime, who are like, I'm trying to be the biggest. Mm-hmm. Some comedians are trying to be what they think the best is. Some comedians are trying to be the most themselves. But there are some comedians who are like, I'm trying to be the biggest, that, not that I can be the biggest comedian. I think Bill Cosby always had that. And so that means that you go, if I'm political, that automatically alienates people. I don't want to try. I want to try to get the biggest audience. I don't want to alienate anybody. So I think there are decisions made to be like, if I'm t- everybody's got a mom, everybody goes to the movies, everybody everybody likes football, or at least knows what football is. Everybody knows what the story of Noah is in the Bible. I'm not judging the material, but I'm saying that when you sit down to write jokes, you're automatically picking who's going to be able to relate to it based on what you write on. And I think Bill Cosby, and I think you really see that in the '70s. He like the way I think he does like a full frontal attack on showbiz in the seventies, where he's doing everything from kid shows to comedy albums to primetime shows to late night television, and he's doing movies. He's not leaving any stone unturned, mm-hmm. which is what you do when you want to be the biggest, not when you just want to have a career. So you talk about the fact that he was on the Electric Company, he was on Fat Albert, he was on Sesame Street. Sometimes he was like like leaning into becoming the sort of mainstay of educational programming um and then he goes on to get his doctorate from umass um he started to go by dr william h cosby um he was like leaning into this branding as an educator which took up more space when he became a moral scold later in his career right when he started decrying how much black people didn't value education but as you, you sort of point out in the documentary his own educational background is really spotty. It's really hard to pin down. So what do we know and what don't we know about Bill Cosby and school and his actual education history? Well, we know that he was in, he, he went to two different high schools in Philadelphia, one of them which was a very acclaimed high school, and he dropped out of both of them. We know that he eventually got his GED, which is totally legit and fine, and nobody's arguing with that, but it's not something that he talked about when he talked about education. You know, and then and then it, then it starts to get really sort of like, well, what happened there? So by the time he gets through Temple, 
but he, he doesn't finish. He drops out. And as a college dropout, I'm not judging anybody from dropping out of college. But then once he becomes a star in the 70s, he goes back and gets his degree from Temple. And I think, as Mark Lamont Hill puts it, it's a degree that basically is like for life achievement. It's like it's not – Because he's famous. Yeah, point. he's famous. And, and they also – you know, they understand that if he's an alumna, uh, alumnus of Temple, it's good for them. And I'm sure at that point he's already starting to give them money or he's promising to give them money. So he gets that degree. And then he decides to go get his EDD at UMass. And it's an EDD that is basically an EDD based on his work on Fat Albert and a dissertation that's written about his work on Fat Albert that there is dispute about who wrote that. Right, right, right. So... There's just a sense of like, all that can be fine if those people want to give you a degree. But the way he sort of lorded his education over the rest of us was like, you would have thought he was a straight A student his whole career, went straight through school and graduated summa cum laude and, you know, you know, and just and had, and had done all the work himself without any help. And the fact is, it would have been a better story if he talked about how hard it was to get through school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's not what the narrative was. And so I think that just becomes an, uh, like an early flag of like, this is not all, he is not everything we believe he is. So because by the time you get to the pound cake speech, he's talking about education. He has no empathy in his voice or in his, in his opinions about the difficulty that black people face getting through this, getting through America. And you go, well, you came out of the projects and you had a hard educational background. You don't have any, where'd the, where'd the empathy go? One of the things about sort of the, the the discourse around the Cosby show that wasn't necessarily in the Cosby show, but it was happening around the Cosby show. It was the biggest show on TV for years. It was the highest rated show on TV for like four or five seasons, something like that, maybe even longer. So that show like takes up a lot of space and conversations about black class and aspiration, even though it's not like you can't find that anymore because Bill Cosby is an accused serial rapist. Um, so what do you make of how much that show still still, like, shapes the way people think about the accusations against him. The thing about the show that I think was so revolutionary that I even sort of learned as I looked back on it was, like, a lot of it was made about how much money the Huxtables had or had to have had to live that lifestyle. And when I watched it later, I was like, first of all, when I watched it, I wasn't thinking about the money as a kid. I think what I was connecting to was the fact that this was a black family who didn't have to worry about money, which, to, which, was a, which just meant they got to be themselves, it wasn't about the fact that they weren't, it wasn't like a show about people who were always like with new cars and, and new, you know, they wouldn't even buy Theo the Gordon Gartrell shirt. <laughs> you know, it's a show about black people being allowed to make choices based on strength and privilege, not choices based on lack and, uh, and, and not having and poverty. Like, you know, you think about the Jeffersons, that shows about a guy who has money but doesn't really know how to act. You know, like I mean, it's just about the fact that, like, or or not that he doesn't know how to act, but he he sort of like it's about how he doesn't fit into the place where the money has taken him, uh, which he shouldn't fit in. I want to be clear; I'm a fan of George Jefferson. But then you and you go to Good Times, and it's about a family who every week it's about will we have enough money? The Cosby Show is about a family who's like just wants to celebrate the grandparents and he wants to play cards with the guys and he wants to eat his favorite sandwich and the fish died. And normally in a black show like that, you're going to have to talk about the rent at some point. Mm-hmm. And that show, they never had to talk about the rent, which for some people, I think, and I think it was really mostly non-black people. I think black people understood what was going on, but for some white people, it was like almost offensive. How can you not reflect the average black family? But to be fair, like, this is like the Reagan era. This is like the crack era, right? Like there is a real sort of crisis happening in black neighborhoods all around the country. And the Cosby show 
And it's something I felt personally. The Cosby Show was as much like a tool to berate people with, like rhetorically in our politics, as it was a thing that was supposed to like motivate people and inspire people. You know what I mean? For sure. I think there's ways in which that stuff gets weaponized by people. You know, I think it, I, I can't help but look at the Cosby Show and go like, it's weird that they were in Brooklyn in the '80s. And LL Cool J didn't guest star in an episode or like that, like that there was not like a lot of hip hop influence coming through that door. But then I heard like Questlove say the first time he saw a sampler was on the Cosby show with Stevie Wonder. So I sort of like, well, maybe I'm looking at this in the wrong way. So I think there are ways in which it becomes a Rorschach test for how you for what, what you think about it sort of says a lot about you. But yes, absolutely. And we showed this in the documentary that that the way in which Bill Cosby sort of gets it sort of takes on respectability politics, especially later in his career, gets weaponized by people like Mitt Romney who are like, why don't you just be more like Bill Cosby? And the fact is, is that the Huxville family is not a, it's not a documentary. It's a fictional family in a in a in a in a fictional place in the place of Brooklyn, but not the Brooklyn that Brooklyn is experiencing necessarily at the time. There are a lot of people in this documentary um, giving the different takes and perspectives on Bill Cosby and his work and the people on that show are notably not there, except for Joseph C. Phillips, um, who played Martin, Denise's husband, in, like, the later seasons. Um, and that's really glaring. It's very telling. Um, like, in fact, with the exception of Felicia Rashad, I think, no one who was on that show has really said much about the accusations. Um, she said that they were an attempt to destroy his legacy. She said that a few times. Um, they've all been pretty quiet over the last decade-plus uh, as all this has unfolded. So... I, I know, like, you were doing your due diligence. You had to reach out to the cast members of the show. Um, what happened when you reached out to them? I mean, there was, like, you know, there's everything from no response to sometimes to some people, and I won't, I don't want to say names because that's for them to say, where I had conver- pretty significant conversations or, or exchanges with them. And that there was a sense of, like, for some of them, like, like understanding what I was trying to do and understanding that there was some way they could contribute to it but trying to figure out how to make it make sense, how to make it make sense for them. Because I think specifically if you are a black person in the entertainment industry, if you if you have anything critical to say, if you have anything critical or supportive to say about Bill Cosby, there's a part of your audience who's going to, who's not going to be happy about that. Even now, like even now, like when Bill Cosby is far diminished in stature, he's not the Bill Cosby of the 80s, right? Oh, yeah. Right? Uh, welcome to come to my uh, Instagram comments and we'll, we'll <laughs> take a tour. <laughs> I mean, I know he has he has he has his defenders like out in the world, but I mean, like Bill Cosby himself is no longer like he can't like ruin their careers, right? Like he can't like like keep them from getting jobs. I don't think it's about him ruining your career. It's about the fact that he is still embedded deeply into the heart of some of some black folks in a way that like they do not want to take in any of this other stuff. Even if they believe he did these things, they do the math of like it is more important we protect him at all costs than we listen to these women, even though a third of the women are black. So I think it's about like these conversations can be pretty toxic. And I was really clear with this documentary that I don't want to model toxic conversations. So I'm not going to go find somebody who doesn't believe the woman at all, because I don't think that's a productive conversation in the same way that like, if I'm going to talk about uh, the COVID vaccines, it doesn't help me to go. And on the other side, we have people who think the vaccine makes you magnetic. It just doesn't, to me, it's not a productive conversation. So I, I think the idea being is the idea being that there that it is still a like Bill Cosby the third real conversation for everybody who grew up in Bill Cosby's America and then if you're black and if you're a celebrity and you worked with him and you're identified as being your whole career is owed to him you're just adding more electrified rails to this conversation 
in a way that even if you've spoken at it before, you maybe experienced some level of attack, or maybe you, and if you're a black woman, maybe you didn't feel safe in the world after you after you said anything, and now it's about like at what cost do I say something again when every time I've poked my head up or started to, I have felt uh, attacked, and so I think it's really more about like our public discourse on this is not yet in a good enough place where somebody can have. May, where somebody who's worked close, super close with him can have a nuanced perspective. And I think the only reason that Joseph C. Phillips is able to get there is, one, he's not as identified as a, cat, as a Cosby kid as the rest of them. By the time he got to the show, he was an adult. He wasn't a child. And he had the specific thing happen where he, asked, where he didn't believe the accusers until he asked a woman in his life about, did you ever have anything weird? And she, as he says in the series, she broke down and started crying. And I think he suddenly felt a responsibility to support this person. This was a woman who told him that she was assaulted by Bill Cosby as well. Yes. And he asked her sort of like in a way that he thought, well, she's not going to say anything. He, she didn't have this happen. And she immediately broke down crying and told him. And so I think that that unfortunately with some of these things, and we talk about this in the series, it is, for some people, it's hard to believe this stuff happens until you know somebody it happened to. And I think also, because of the nature of show business, the whole business, and this is, I think, what the bigger issue is, the whole business trains us to look the other way if the star is doing something that they shouldn't be doing. And it could be yelling at a PA. It doesn't have to be criminal. It could just be like, it could be yelling about their mocha and you just go, oh, I'm glad I'm not that PA and I'll just keep it pushing because the business is not set up in a way that there are mechanisms for like, uh-oh, the number one person on the call sheet is not acting correctly. Let me go tell HR and they will talk to that person, not fire me. And so I think there's just a sense that like there is still, we have this for the culture, many people in the culture have decided that one black man's voice is more important than than the than the black women who have who have who have claims of rape and sexual assault by Bill Cosby. I mean, the number of women who have accused Bill Cosby of sexual assault and rape is at this point like somewhere between fifty and sixty. And as one person in the documentary points out, if fifty or sixty women have come forward, then the real number is probably like north of a hundred, right? Um, because of the mm. sheer number of allegations against Bill Cosby, though, like. There are just so many survivors that you could have talked to for this. Um, and at every sort of juncture in the documentary, when you're laying out the parts of Bill Cosby's life, like this was the moment when he became, you know, a TV star. You go to a survivor um, who tells her story of like that is like parallel in the timeline. Like while Bill Cosby was blowing up on Ice by he this woman tells a story about how he raped her. Bill Cosby is, you know, uh, digging in his hills as a sort of substitute teacher on TV, right? He's raping these people. As he's getting his PhD at UMass, you talk to a survivor in each of those places. So I'm wondering, it seemed like there's this horrible surplus of, like, monstrous stories to pull from. Like, how you decided on which stories to focus on. Because you do weave smaller excerpts in throughout throughout the docuseries. But there are a couple of stories you really let kind of breathe. I mean, a lot of this is a function of, you know, obviously we weren't going to talk to all of the survivors. It's over 50, as you say, some say 60. And all of them weren't going to talk to us because a lot of them, again, it's like what you're saying with some of the people who are just connected with Cosby. When they spoke their head up to tell their story once, they were like, it didn't, they got attacked. And so they're like, well, I'm not doing it again. And so I think the idea being that like once we got uh, some of the survivors who wanted to do it, it was just basically like the ones who showed up first were the ones we sort of like were like, okay. Let's sit down and do this. And then it becomes at some point like we kept sort of had these asks out. And as they came in, it was like, are we need stories from certain eras? 
uh, we need stories that we need a variety of stories. So like Eden Turl's story is a story of assault. It's not a story of rape, but we don't want to say that like, this is wor- this is that, that story doesn't matter, you know? And also she's able to talk about lots of things. Cause she actually was an actor mm-hmm. on the Cosby show. So there's just a sense of like how they're connected to the Cosby directly. If they worked on the show, what their story is. And you also want some, you, it is, it does come out that there was a way in which he did it. That does feel like these, that he has an MO about how he goes about this, so you want to highlight those things. But really, the first interview we did is sort of the nature of this is also just how you can't control this, you just get what you get. And the first survivor we talked to was Victoria Valentino. And so that was the interview that like really broke open for me how to do this, because I was nervous about how she was going to handle it. And I think she came through understanding that she was taking care of us in large part because she's told this story before mm-hmm. and she's been through all this and we're the ones who are new to this. And so for me, it was like once once we got so much from her in that first interview, I became clear, like, we have to make sure that we highlight all of these stories and these women in ways where it's not just about their time with Bill Cosby. Hmm. So you spent three years basically with all of this information about Bill Cosby, just sitting in this, like, geyser of Bill Cosby stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you've had a lot of time to sit with, you know, the, these horrible crimes that he's accused of. How do you feel about these questions that you posed, right, that you're trying to pose in this documentary, right, about all these different threads of his life and all the things that he touches on and all the, the you know, the monstrous things that he's accused of doing? Um, how are you making sense of this person and his legacy now? I mean, I think, one, we have to stop assuming that because you do good work, you're a good person. And even if because you do good, you because you donate to the right causes or, or create a better work in the world, that means you are incapable of doing bad things. I think this is a way in which showbiz, since the creation of showbiz, has like sort of tried to create false Im- has actively worked to create false images of people because they want you to believe that John Wayne actually is a cowboy. And they don't want you to know that his real name, I think, is Marion. <laughs> like, I think that, like, that, like, there's a way in which we're going to change your name. We're going to dye your hair. We're going to lie about your age. We're going to say you're dating people you're not dating. We're going to give you your clothes. And you're not just a guy who plays cowboys. You actually are a cowboy. And I think that that sort of still exists to this day. And now a lot of celebrities are curating that image themselves on social media. But I think we just have to not be so naive. And I think the next generation is not going to be that naive. That just because you do good work, you are a, a good person and capable of bad things. And the other thing is for me is like none of this means anything if we don't actually try to, if we don't actually work to create more effective systems of safety and support around survivors of sexual assault. W. Kamau Bell's new docuseries on Showtime is called We Need to Talk About Cosby. And y'all, that's our show. We want to hear from you as always, so you can follow us on Twitter and IG at both those places. We are at NPR Code Switch. Subscribe to our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletters and email us at codeswitch at npr.org. This episode was produced by the great Summer Tamad and edited by Leah Danella. And of course, we will be remiss if we did not shout out the rest of the Code Switch massive Karen Grigsby Bates, Alyssa Jong Perry, Christina Kala, Kumari Devarajan, Jess Kung, and Steve Drummond. Our art director is L.A. Johnson. Our intern is Nathan Pugh. I'm Gene Debbie, by the way. Be easy, yo.
This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Get the service you deserve. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the American Cancer Society. By the end of this message, two people will be told they have cancer. Yes, every 15 seconds, someone is diagnosed with cancer. But by the end of this message, you could do something about it with your donation. A gift of any amount to the American Cancer Society can help those facing cancer get free rides to care or a free place to stay closer to treatment. Donate today at cancer.org. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at Life Kit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR.